Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, May 7th. We begin with a conversation with Jason Luan, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. The minister joins us in recognition of Mental Health Awareness Week and shares details of the many online resources available to Albertans. Next, we catch up with a local potato farmer with his story on how the pandemic has impacted his industry and his thoughts on the new government assistance program being offered to producers. Then we speak with a senior transportation engineer from the city for an update on the Crowchild Trail upgrades. We find out how the project is progressing and the expected date of completion. COVID-19 has underscored the need for Canada's independence from the U.S. That's the view of a professor of public and international affairs from the University of Ottawa. We'll hear his thoughts on what steps the nation should take post-pandemic. And finally, the Michael J. Fox Foundation is launching a limited series podcast aimed at helping people living with Parkinson's disease navigate this pandemic. We'll catch up with award-winning podcaster Larry Gifford. When it comes to mental health and resilience, the importance of social connection is vital, but that's been difficult for Albertans of late. It is Mental Health Week, and the theme is getting real about how you feel. With more, we're joined by Jason Luan, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Good morning, Minister. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Andrew, and good morning to your audience there. Well, we thank you for taking the time because, you know, this is it's so key right now. And, and why this message or this theme in particular? Well, to me, this theme is so timely, uh, particularly with the difficult time our burdens are facing. Um, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, normally when we have one crisis, uh, you know, people can try to deal with it uh, as much as you can. In my view, our burdens right now are compounded with three uh, crises. One is the COVID-19, everybody knows, it's a global pandemic. The other one is economic uh, you know, the crash of oil price and the uh, concerns for our burdens of losing job and business is so uh, real. And, and the third one is uh, the onset of uh, flood that, you know, Northern Alberta mm-hmm. uh, is facing. Can you imagine people have three compounded uh, crises uh, coming together and how hard that hit to everyone? So that's my concern. Getting real about how you feel, to me, that makes sense because it seems to me, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, that we've come a long way. It seemed like it was almost taboo or we shouldn't have uh, been talking about how we feel even a few years ago. Do you find that uh, we're getting to a point where it's more accepted to to share our feelings and tell people where we're at? Yeah, you are absolutely right, Andrew, about this. You know, for those who are in the mental health field, they all know by acknowledging the need and open yourself up and be vulnerable and ready to accept help is the step one toward recovery. And so uh, in, in this uh, crisis, it just uh, reminded us uh, you know, to be honest about how we feel, uh, to be ready to, uh, to talk about the challenges, how we feel, uh, to be open for suggestions and, and receiving support. That's huge. That's huge. That's step one. Minister, I know you, the province as a whole, have been working really hard to provide help for all Albertans when it comes to ensuring that we have what we need to get and reach out for help for mental health issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what what you've helped create? Absolutely. I am very proud to say that uh, our government, since established, we placed mental health and addiction as one of the top priorities. Uh, but we're doing even the same, uh, even more uh, during this current uh, pandemic crisis. Uh, you heard me uh, announce with uh, Premier a couple of weeks ago 
we come up with a $53 million comprehensive mental health addiction recovery response to COVID-19. Um, what this is uh, included are uh, from online support to in-person support to virtual help and to increase the clinical support and, uh, and a community grant on top of that to mobilize uh, our communities. Uh, by far, what we've uh, come up with is the most comprehensive and the most aggressive action taken. If I can use a comparison that uh, the total amount of money we put in is greater than all the provinces combined in Canada. Mm. So I'm very proud of that. And the thing about mental health is it's never a one-size-fits-all because this is something when it comes to our overall health that does not discriminate age, uh, gender, any of that. You're absolutely right, Andrew. Our intention is this. Uh, we want to create this comprehensive package and create a multiple access for people to access service. We recognize that each one take their own unique journey for recovery. But the message is this. No matter where you are in the province, no matter what uh, circumstances you're facing with, if you're struggling, know that we're here for you. Whether it's support for addictions, alcohol, tobacco, other drugs, whether it's the Kids Help Phone, Alberta Mental Health Helpline, there are so many options available to us right now, and it's important that we make sure everybody knows that. Best website for folks to go to at this point, though, if they're needing some help dealing with mental health issues? Absolutely. The website is... Uh uh, alberta.ca slash mental health. It's all there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. If I can uh, leave one word for our burdens that, uh, yeah, you know, with the work we're doing, uh, we're so proud to be in a position to help everyone uh, that we're in need. Our belief is this. Together, we can do what we cannot do alone. Excellent point and so true. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. That's Jason Luan, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. And again, Mental Health Week right through till the 10th on Mother's Day. And uh, never, I would submit to you, Sue, and everyone out there, have we needed a Mental Health Week more than now? Oh, you're not kidding. You know, I, I hear it from so many people just in my friend's circle. I, I hear, I see it on Facebook. Just people having, you know, it's a tough go right now. Not just the, the fear of, you know, what is happening in the world right now with this pandemic, but, you know, what's going to go on with our kids going back to school? Are we doing right by them in terms of teaching and uh, being stuck at home, not being able to see friends and get that sort of, you know, help as well? It's a tough go for a lot of folks right now. And even uh, you know, my wife has said to me, you know, and I feel like I'm always around. <laughs> a lot of people are at home alone, isolating. I get that. Very working. true. Uh, but in, in our, our case, she says, I feel like I'm never alone because yeah, we don't get alone. I don't time. have any. And I said, I, you know, besides, you know, go down to the basement, read a book, watch a show, go for a walk. Uh, there's, there's not a lot. She can't, you know, get together. She get together with uh, her, uh, uh, one of her girlfriends for sushi, like once a month. For sure. That has been months in the making. So we've all changed our routines mm -hmm. enough. Uh, and again, whether or not you don't have that interaction or maybe it's a case that you have too many people around you. Or you've lost your job. I mean, there are Could just be. so many reasons for us to be stressed and, you know, having anxiety or anything like that. So there's another site you can go to as well. It's mentalhealthweek.ca. There are lots of resources there, lots available. Reach out if you're having any kind of issue. There's always somebody there to help you out. And if for, every, uh, for any reason you're not near a computer, the Mental Health Help Line is one 303 2642 
7.18 earlier this week, the Prime Minister announcing a $50 million surplus food purchase program to assist farmers who lost their markets and to ensure that communities and families who are in need get food. We're touching base now with a local potato farmer, Michael Camps, to hear how this whole thing has impacted him. Good morning, Michael. How's it going? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. How would you say this pandemic has affected you most overall as a potato farmer at this point? On our farm, we uh, we just noticed mostly a, a giant drop in demand for our crop. Uh, the potatoes that we grow are strictly produced for the process industry, so to make French fries or hash browns or wedges for for the breakfast menus and whatnot. And people are just not going to the restaurants right now, and therefore there's less demand for our potatoes, and there might be some some excess here that we're going to have to get rid of here going into the summer. Again, that's worst-case scenario because this is something that you do each and every day. You don't, uh, you could have never imagined something like this, could you, Mike? No, no. We, we were, of course, we're used to, you know, weather-related, you know, uh, surpluses or shortages, and they usually run into, you know, like the 2, 3, 4, 5% range. But, you know, something like this where we're dealing with a 20, 25% uh, excess, that is just extreme. We've, we, 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 we're not... We're not set up to deal with something like this. Michelle, we had heard that, you know, there were a lot of farmers thinking about just not even bothering to plant this year because they didn't think they'd have the market. Is that a concern still? Or does this money now from the federal government help you out? Well, the, we're still planting because the, the crop that we plant now will come online in August like of this year, mm-hmm. you know. So, and that crop will have to last until August 2021. And I sure hope that by yeah. you know, August 2021, this is a long ways behind us. So we're still planting a crop for the upcoming uh, processing season, but uh, we're more concerned about the crop that's in the storage right now, and that's where the government-announced uh, aid will, will definitely help, that's for sure, yeah. I've seen uh, statements online uh, saying you support the potato farmers, uh, buy fries, buy more fries. Mm-hmm. Would, 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 if, if people came to their, well, their regular grocery store uh, during uh, the pandemic, whether it's once a week or twice a week, and they stocked up on French fries, hash browns, tater tots. Would that make a difference? It would make a difference, but a very small difference. You have to understand that 70% of our crop that we produce in Alberta is being exported either to the U.S. or, or overseas, like other countries such as the Pacific Rim. And, you know, th- that huge amount of export has also been reduced very drastically. And if we have to eat all those potatoes right here in Alberta, we're all going to have to have and buy treadmills. <laughs> the way it is. So. Well, I think we're all probably missing the fries at the restaurants for sure. But, Michelle, is there a way that we can help then? Do, should, if it's not the, the pre-prepared fries at the store, do we buy the bags of potatoes? Does that help our farmers? Um, what do we need to do? It's, <laughs> that's a very good question. There's, as, a, as a general population in Alberta, there's very little we can do. It, it, we, every little bit helps, don't get me wrong, but we're talking about such a huge surplus of potatoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if every Albertan would buy 40 pounds of potatoes or 50 pounds of potatoes and, and eat that, that would help. But we have a very hard time getting just the actual whole potato into a retail channel. We just don't, simply don't have the facilities to pack that many extra potatoes in such a short amount of time to be sold as potatoes available in the grocery store, you know what I mean? Okay. Like the, the, the potatoes that we grow are, are you know, they're, they're destined for that processed market and it's very tough to, it, it, the logistics of that are very, very complicated to transfer them into a different market. Thank you so much for your time and uh, hopefully, uh, crossing fingers, things turn around uh, sooner rather than later. Michelle. We all hope for the same, you bet. Good stuff. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Andrew. That's Michelle Camps, uh, Alberta potato farmer, having a tough go right now.
I got two bags of fries in the freezer ready to go soon. <laughs> Keep eating. 8-11 on the morning news. Every region west of Quebec is facing an above-average risk of wildfires this year, with the risk highest here in the west. To talk about the prediction models, we are joined now by University of Alberta wildfire science professor Mike Flanagan. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Andrew. So is the increased wildfire risk because we're looking at a hot summer, or is there more at play here? So I'd like to start out with uh, forecasting. It's really difficult, whether it's for next week or for the (laughs) summer. And so you have to take this with a grain of salt. And actually, I would take a lot of salt with this. Um, Yeah, yeah, the the fire season will depend on the day-to-day weather. And um, so it's really difficult to predict. And uh, so, you know, I would say who knows what's what's going to happen this year, except for tell people that Alberta is special um, and that May is the busiest month for fire in Alberta and that's the only place in Canada where May is the busiest and this happens every spring um, and you only have to think back last year uh, check a creek fire that was in May uh, Fort McMurray was in May Slave Lake was in May so and those are all in the last 10 years and that's this is the time when we have our problem and I did look up the forecast for last year at this time, and it said Alberta would have a normal to below normal May. And, of course, we had a record-breaking uh, mm-hmm. fire season last year. So I do take these with a lot of salt. And, you know, basically, who knows what's going to happen. Mike, what is normal? I mean, normal just happens, and it's good for regrowth, et cetera. But how much is that? So in Canada, we burn about... Uh, two and a half million hectares a year. That's half the size of Nova Scotia, and that's distributed across the provinces, mostly in northern, more remote areas, Northwest Territories, Northern Saskatchewan. Alberta gets a fair bit of fire as well, and as I mentioned, mostly in May. Um, So, yeah, fire is a problem, but it varies every year because of the day-to-day weather, hot, dry, windy weather in particular. Mm -hmm. And there's another aspect is ignition, okay? Uh, There's people and there's lightning. And this year's a bit different because of COVID-19. Um, you know, there's fire bans in a number of the provinces, Alberta included, and, you know, different stay-at-home policies. There may be less people working and recreating in the forest, and this may reduce the number of human-caused fires. And that's our biggest problem in Alberta in May is human-caused fires. So if there are things happening to reduce those, it may help us have a quieter season. But once again, it depends on the day-to-day weather. And, of course, lightning doesn't care about the pandemic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we still have lightning fires. So you mentioned the forecast you have to take with a grain of salt or several boxes, as you mentioned. <laughs> as far as looking ahead to the summer, can we uh, say with or without certainty there will be fire bans in Alberta? Or is that something that we have to see closer to the uh, summer months? Well, yeah. Uh, there's, most years, it's just, you know, how dry is the forest? And, you know, that determines whether it's a fire ban or, or not. But this year, because of the pandemic, COVID-19, a lot of jurisdictions are doing fire bans ahead just to reduce the number of fires because they don't want their crews to be unnecessarily at risk just because of human-caused fires. So anything they can do to reduce human-caused fires, that's what they're doing. As we see global warming and temperature changing across the planet, how much effect does that have on uh, uh, wildfires in Canada? So, 
Yeah, we are warming, and if we do have a warm summer, we're more likely to have more fire. And that, that's what Environment Canada is forecasting, is for a warmer summer. Um, in Canada, our area burned has doubled since the 70s, and my colleagues and I attribute this to human-caused climate change. It can't be any clearer than that. It's, the warmer we get, the more fire we see. And people say, well, why is temperature so important? Here, I'm not talking about an individual fire like the Fort McMurray fire. I'm talking about fire over a large area like Alberta over a month or fire season. So temperature, why is it important? Longer fire seasons. We're seeing that in Alberta. Officially, we start March 1st. It used to be April 1st. Warmer gets the more lightning we see, and everything else being equal. More lightning means more fire. But everything's not equal because the warmer it gets, unless we see increases in rainfall, the fuels are drier. Mm-hmm. And if the fuels are dry, it's easy for a fire to start, easier to spread, and it's likely to burn more intensely, which means it's really difficult, sometimes impossible, to put out by fire management. So those are the reasons why temperature is so important. So if we do have a warmer than average summer or in spring, in, in Alberta's case, because that's our busy season, we, we could have a problem. So are we uh, unique here in Alberta when you mentioned it uh, starting earlier and uh, more intensity, or does this happen in other parts of the world uh, and our nation as well? It happens across Canada, but it's more pronounced in Alberta. Okay. And the reason it happens across Canada is, you know, once the snow disappears, it takes about three weeks, sometimes four, before things green up and get, you know, wash and moist. But during that period, that three or four weeks, you've got the dead grass, dead needles, dead leaves. And if you get warm, dry, windy weather, everything's ripe to go. Once things green up, it takes more heat and a longer dry period for it to really kick into gear. So this window period is more pronounced in Alberta because we have a lot of people working and recreating in the forest. And our weather patterns lead to these really dry, windy conditions. We saw that last year, Chuckade Creek. We saw it at uh, Slave Lake. Strong southeast winds, really dry Arctic air coming down exceedingly dry, dries out the fields, you get a human-caused fire most of the time in May, and then it runs into, and runs and runs and runs and sometimes hit communities. Well, we'll be watching to see what happens. Hopefully we have nice weather for the summer, but fire season under control. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Mike Flanagan, University of Alberta wildfire science professor. 749 on the morning news. It's a three-year-long project, and it's finally... Close to being finished. Joining us to talk about Crow Child Trail over the Bow River is Jeff Baird, Senior Transportation Engineer on the Crow Child Trail Upgrades Project. Hi, Jeff, and good morning. Good morning to you, too. Is it true? Is Crow Child <laughs> Trail nearly reopened for business? It, it is, yes. We've got a little bit more work to do here as the weather comes around and the warm construction season starts. But a lot done until the end of last year, so obviously we're looking forward to uh, finishing it up and, and moving on here this summer. Jeff, were you delayed a little bit because of the pandemic closures as well? Did that affect crews on the site? So it, it certainly does require some extra mitigation and procedures on site. We're obviously still working out there. Um, the the things that they'll have to look a bit harder at, like say wrapping up the cleaning, adding hand washing stations, um, procedures for transporting crews around, whether that's in vehicles and otherwise staggering start times. So there's there's fewer people in, in one particular place at a given time. So work is continuing. Obviously, there's a bit of an adjustment that, that needs to be happened. Um, and, and no question, the social distancing adds another element to that as well. 
So what still needs to be completed on the project before we can open it up? So really the focus through this summer is going to be uh, finishing up a little bit of structural work that's uh, overall pretty minor, relatively speaking, to the overall project. And then once the weather does stop, start to cooperate, do uh, do some final paving right through the site and then get those lanes painted and opened up, a bit of cleanup, and then we're out of there. To to no, us non-engineering you know engineering type folks, it seems like it takes forever. Why is it that a project like this just takes so long? Three years, that's a long time to work on it. It, it is. I mean, we're coming up on, yeah, two and a half years. It'll be just under three by the time that we're done. Um, and and this, this particular project is certainly unique in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's... Uh, it's, it's tough to see everything that, that's going on out there, but we were rehabilitating some 60-year-old bridges and widening those same bridges, uh, relocating on and off ramps, all while working over a, a set of CP tracks, the river, other busy roadways, the LRT tracks and pathways. And then on top of that, we had to, to keep lanes open during rush hour to ensure that there wasn't a huge impact to, to traffic during the busy, the busy hours. So... Um, yeah, it's a testament to the project team. I know that it feels like it's taken a long time, but it's uh, it's a substantial amount of work that had to happen out there, and it's uh, it's pretty impressive to to see what's been accomplished by men and women out on site and and working 24 hours a day through winters. So it's uh, it was a challenging project, no question. And thankfully, we're in the the home stretch here. How many people have worked on the project? Can you give us an estimate? Uh, overall, yeah, I don't know exactly, but I mean, there's during the, the spikes through the, the busy times, I mean, we were upwards of hundred, 150 people on site wow. and that's just the men and women on site, not including the design team, obviously the, the project management team and the support staff on, on the contractor side, all of the city staff that is involved putting in the lane closures, um, all of the suppliers and the manufacturers, all the materials that go in there. So it's a pretty long list of um, the people who are involved on the project. So end of summer looks like completion dates on schedule, on track for that. What will it look like when you open it all up? Yeah, so once once we're done, it'll be just a, I guess, a compliment to the work that has already been complete. And so when it's all finished up, we'll have an additional northbound and southbound lane from Bow Trail through to Memorial Drive. Uh, the additional northbound lane from Memorial Drive to Fifth Avenue is already open. Uh, the, the ramps from Bow Trail and 10th Avenue have been relocated on that right-hand side of Crowchild. The, the bridges are physically wide now, and so people traveling through there can probably see the extra space on the bridges themselves. Um, the, the northbound Crowchild to eastbound Memorial Drive ramp has been completed. The signalized intersection at Bow Trail and 10th Avenue is finished. The pathway crossing, the signalized crossing at Parkdale Boulevard, also open along with the pathway through West Hillhurst from Kensington Road down to the, the 21st Street overpass. And so really what we're going to be doing when it's all, or what's going to look like when it's all finished, it'll just be uh, opening up the remaining space that we can once it's all paved. And then it'll just, uh, those additional lanes can be fully opened in each direction and then it'll all come together nicely. Uh, obviously the lanes will be wider, the lanes will be straighter than we're used to for the last couple of years during construction. So this, this final push through here this summer is really just to bring it all together, finish off the paving and open everything up that's in many cases already there. Thanks so much for the update, Jeff. We appreciate it. Thank you. That is Jeff Baird, Senior Transportation Engineer, Crowchild Trail Upgrades Project.
Coming up on 610, Canada and the United States share a border, obviously, but COVID-19 has underscored the need to perhaps start easing our dependence on the United States. We're joined this morning by Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, Serjan Vucetic. Good morning, Serjan. Good morning, Sue. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Love to get your perspective on this. What exactly do you think has this pandemic shown about Canada's reliance on the United States? It's shown that it's simply to hide. What we're saying in this piece, and my colleague Philip Lagasse uh, from Carleton University is not here to talk to me to talk to you about this, is that it's it's shown some of the limits that have been recognized by generations of Canadian citizens as as well as their leaders, and it's 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 simply too high. It's uh, it's a question of safety uh, for Canadian life in general. So what we're saying here is let's go back to some of the some of the historic debates uh, and ideas on how to reduce it. So we developed this in, in a short piece. So, Jan, are there any specific sectors we can look at that are highlighted by this uh, that we should be easing back from? Any sectors more so that we see this dependence? Well, yes. I mean, so it depends where you stand on the political spectrum. I mean, we could talk about on about anything from energy uh, to food security to production of critical personal protective equipment, so medical uh, medical stuff. Uh, but but it's it's across the board. So what we're saying here is there are a few ifs. So if the U.S. cannot get a handle on the virus or if its leadership chooses a protectionist route to economic recovery both before or after the election this year, or if international trade or, and movement are slow to reestablish themselves, or if protectionism becomes a worldwide response, all of these are Canada's problems. We can expect a cumbersome recovery. So what we're saying is, well, let's, let's look back at some of the some of the previous debates on this very issue. Same myths. Uh, so in 1972, um, Mitchell Sharp, who was the State Secretary for External Affairs in Pierre Trudeau's government, he introduced this policy idea called the third option. And what we're saying is, that, well, let's, let's look, at, look at that again and, and review why that third option did not work as advertised in the first time. And maybe the time for it has come now. Can we survive as a nation without that close relationship we have with the U.S.? Well, it's a generational project. This will take money and time, and it will, it will change uh, our political culture if we decide to go down this route. Of course we can survive. I mean, survival is a kind of a broad, uh, broad term, but it will, it will require time and money. And by that, I mean taxes would have to go up. And it's not going to be by our choice. It's not something that we choose What if they close the border? What if the United States decides uh, that it would be a good good idea to close the border because of who who knows what happens? Then we just simply won't have a choice but find a way to survive. Mm -hmm. What do you say to the, uh, well, the other side, the devil's advocate who say, uh, you know, with 37 million people, there are just certain industries that we can't sustain on our own and it it just doesn't make sense economically to, to have them in our nation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's, it's a very good argument. That's actually the consensus. It has been for the last 75 years. The order, both continental and international, has been very good to us. But we are going to have to start investing in national manufacturing, on medical uh, goods, not just that, but also crafting effective responses to global crisis, not only in the area of public health, but also finance, security, defense, obviously climate change. 
Um, it will be very difficult. Uh, this is not something that happens overnight. This is, as I said, a generational project. We've had to start having these debates now to address exactly the types of uh, trade-offs that are involved with any policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw it with, you know, trade talks between the U.S. and Canada when it came to steel and aluminum, softwood lumber, etc. that, you know, the U.S. basically kind of pushed us around. And it seemed like Canada, in the end, held out and, and got the deal that, you know, it seemed that we wanted. But it, the U.S. was clearly in charge. Yes, they're in charge with everyone, not just with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much, much bigger states always thought, oh, well, we can, we can get some uh, uh, special deals with the United States. They might, but these are, this could be only short-term. Even if Trump loses the election, we, we might still have Trumpism in the United States, and, and one of the you know, two political parties in the United States seems to be committed to the kind of politics that does not benefit us in the short-term or, or in the long-term. I mean, what we're saying, we realize this is Canadian nationalism 101. We've been talking about the third option since before the Confederation, uh, since the time of Sir Johnny A and since the time of, as I mentioned earlier, 1970s. None of this is new, and there are good reasons why we've always stayed the course. But again, this might not be a choice anymore. Well, particularly what we're seeing as far as the the rates of uh, coronavirus in the USA and the number of deaths are reaching out close to 75,000, um, you know, particularly with being dependent on one nation. Could there be an argument made that we just need more, uh, I guess you'd say, strength in numbers, global partners besides the U.S. and, and to, to spread our need out around the world? Yeah, these are great points. Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. hasn't peaked yet. New York, I mean, uh, yeah. the city has peaked, but the rest of the country hasn't. So this might go on for a very long time. Uh, so in addition to building state capacity, uh, so building building our own state and protecting sovereignty at home, uh, we will have to look for other partners. Um, so look at Asia, look at Europe, look at Africa, look at the rest of the Americas. Uh, I mean, and, and by that, I mean, let's learn from their responses to COVID-19. I mean, one, one thing that all governments who did well, relatively speaking, uh, in this crisis have in common is that they have a lot of China experts in their government. So people who speak Mandarin and who do not look at what China is saying, but they're actually looking at what's happening in, in the ground on, in, in China. And so they, they learned in January that what China, the information China was feeding to the World Health Organization was all fake. So they were able to, to quickly uh, respond uh, with, with more effective policies. So I'm, ta- I'm talking about Taiwan, Singapore, uh, South Korea, but also you know, places like New Zealand. I mean, they, they, they've been paying more, more attention. So Canada probably should engage with all of those partners in Asia mm-hmm. simply to learn some of this resilience that, uh, that, that they've been developing since the 2003 SARS crisis. Important conversation. It hopefully will continue and uh, hopefully benefit our country in the end. Thanks for joining us with your perspective, Sir John. Thank you, Sue. Have a good day. You too. That's Thank you, Andrew. Sir John Vucetic, who's the Associate Prof Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. The Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research is launching a limited series podcast which is designed to help people with Parkinson's disease and their care partners navigate their way through the COVID-19 pandemic. We are joined now by award-winning podcaster Larry Gifford. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Can you tell us a little bit about your story to start things off and about your journey living with Parkinson's disease? 
Sure, yeah. I was diagnosed uh, in 2017 at the age of 45 with a young-onset Parkinson's. Uh, any, anybody diagnosed under the age of 60 is considered to be young-onset. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's a devastating disease. It's, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that uh, degenerates uh, over time. So uh, it's very progressive. And so in the last three years, I've I've seen a decline in my own abilities, um, you know, and, and, and I take a, a ton more medicine than I did three three years ago. So I'm I'm up to over 200 pills per week just wow. to uh, to keep moving. Wow. So it, I mean, you're an award winning podcaster yourself that you've been doing when life gives you Parkinson's for some time now. So is that how you kind of got tagged by the Michael J. Fox Foundation? Had they known about you through that? Yeah, so they they actually, when we launched the podcast a couple of years ago, they reached out and we had a meeting. And and since then, I've joined the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and we meet a couple times a year and advise the council on on, on research projects and how to involve patients and what what the patient community is concerned about. And uh, it's a a great uh, collaborative effort. There's about 20 of us on the the council. Uh, And I've been hosting live events for the Michael J. Fox Foundation across the United States before COVID uh, in a series of events called the Parkinson's IQ Plus U. And it's a day-long free events for people with Parkinson's and their care partners. And we have panel discussions about how to prepare for a doctor's appointment and how to deal with dementia, which is one of the late stage issues, or, or how, to, how to build your care team and how to how to be a great care partner and it's so all the all these things that maybe, maybe people don't know about um and uh so that's been a great uh, collaboration and since we have uh we're socially distanced so we can't travel anywhere mm-hmm. uh, we're, we've put our heads together to figure out well how can we reach uh, reach people and get all this information out that we have so the COVID 19 so pand- podcast yeah well, you know, and it's it's a great resource, like you say, being socially distanced. Uh, distanced. When it comes to the COVID nineteen pandemic, it's something we've never experienced as a whole in society. What unique challenges does it present to people living with Parkinson's? Well, Parkinson's is uh, is a fairly lonely disease. Even even though you know, like I've got a, w- a wife and a kid, and lots of friends, and um, I'm, you know, I, I've got a job with lots of colleagues, but. Uh, nobody really understands what you're going through or how you're feeling because you, you, most of us have a, a fairly masked face where there's not a lot of expression. Um, and I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and he was on TV doing an interview, and he goes, it was the worst I've ever felt in my life, and my wife couldn't tell. Mm. Um, and so you're kind of trapped inside this body. Uh, and then now you're socially isolated, and you, you don't have that community to turn to. And so, so that's that's part of it. And so, you know, how how to how to keep connected to the community is really important. Uh, opportunities to participate in online exercise activities because exercise is really the only thing they can prescribe to keep the symptoms from from progressing. Um, and, and so, if you don't have that motivation of going to class every Tuesday or whatever, are you really going to get out of your chair and? turn off your TV and do it. Uh, and so keeping people motivated to do that. Uh, and then, you know, we have a lot of medical appointments. We've got a lot of doctors we see. And so then figuring out telemedicine is a really big issue. And, you know, the, Parkinson's for the most part is an older person's disease. And it affects a lot of, affects about 10% of the people under 60, but 90% of the people are over 60. And so using that technology and helping them figure that out so they can still see their doctors is a big deal. Larry, can we find this podcast on all of our favorite platforms? Well, you can find it on michaeljfox.org. Uh, they have a whole podcast section. You can also get it on Apple and Google and wherever you listen to on-demand audio for sure. Good stuff. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Stay safe.
That is Larry Gifford, award-winning podcaster. And the host of the new Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast, Navigating COVID-19 When You Have Parkinson's Disease.